Ever found yourself in the middle of a hard season or circumstance? Ever wondered where Jesus was or if he would ever see you there? Well, I have good news. He is there and he will see you. And more than that, he even enters into your story to change it. You're listening to Happy and Holy, a podcast about discipleship and community and how we meet each other right where we are to be the people of God on planet Earth. And when we do, we have the potential to become the happy and holy disciples we are meant to be. I'm your host, Kate Boyd, and today we kick off season three all about rediscovering Jesus. I thought there was no better place to begin than with my friend Kat Armstrong. Kat was born in Houston, Texas, where the humidity ruins her curls. She is a powerful voice in our generation as an innovative ministry leader, sought-after communicator, and the author of two books, No More Holding Back and The In-Between Place. As the co-founder of The Polished Network, an outreach for professional women navigating career and exploring faith, she is invested in the lives of women eager to learn about how the scriptures are relevant to their everyday lives. She has a master's from Dallas Seminary, and her husband, Aaron, she and her husband, Aaron, have been married for 18 years and live in Dallas, Texas with their son, Caleb, and they attend Dallas Bible Church where Erin serves as the lead pastor. She joined me today to talk all about Jesus's encounter with the woman at the well, which is the center point um, for her latest book, The The In-Between Place, which you can pick up anywhere. And we talk about how that story changed her life, that her being both Kat and the woman at the well. I think you're going to love our conversation, so let's just get right to it. Thank you so much, Kat, for being here today. I'm excited to chat about in-between places with you. Thanks, Katie. I so appreciate you. <laughs> it's really funny that you ca- you call me Katie. No, we I know. I'm sorry. No, it's totally fine. <laughs> People don't know that it, I live I live dual lives. I have like an identity crisis every time I go to Starbucks and they ask me what my name is. <laughs> <laughs> I know that you are going to run into. <laughs> yeah, but I call you Katie. I'm sorry. I need to. My fancy professional name is Kate, Um, (laughs) but we're also friends, so you happen to know me by Katie as well. Um, So I'm really excited about the in-between place. Like I was telling you before, I sort of powered through it in a couple of days um, and wrapped it up today, and I, I have personally been obsessed with The Woman at the Well for probably a good five, six years now, but I'm curious where your sort of obsession with her started since that's really the linchpin of of the book is her story. Yeah. I was in Israel two and a half years ago with Reverend Dr. Jackie Reese, my favorite preacher on the planet besides Aaron, my husband, of course. Um, But we were on a trip to the Holy land to study women in the Bible And we remember really clearly it was Mother's Day. It was the 70th anniversary uh, independence of Israel. There were bombs going off in Gaza. We could hear them. They were really close by. Um, Lots of things going on around us. And our tour bus got out in modern-day Samaria. And I remember Jackie was going to teach about Dinah. Um, from Genesis 34, which if your listeners are not familiar with her story, I just want to forewarn you that there are some really terrible things that happened to Diana. She suffered abuse 
And so if that's a trigger for you, you know, take a moment and really think if you want to, if this is the day that you want to hear more about Dinah's story, but we, um, I remember the tour guide getting up and saying, you know, Jackie is going to talk about Dinah who was raped here in Samaria in a place called Shechem by a man named Shechem. And now we're going to hear from Jackie Reese and she's going to talk, or excuse me, other way around. He said, um, in, this is also where the woman at the well story happened. So this was the first time I'd ever connected the dots. You know, I don't think about Samaria on a, a map. I think about it as a word in the text of scripture. Yeah. And so to be in modern day Samaria and to look around and think, oh yeah, this is a real place on a real map. Um, I started to make some connections between Dinah's story and the woman at the well. And really I became obsessed with her story at that point. I think because Katie, you know, when you get to know somebody and you find out, like for me, I could tell you I'm from H-Town. I'm from Houston. I am was you know, a true Houstonian, born and raised. There might be a lot of assumptions that come with that if you're familiar with the city. Like I like to eat out because we have so many restaurants in Houston and I'm used to bad traffic. And I think people who complain about traffic in Dallas are wimpy because in Houston... <laughs> It takes an hour to get anywhere. You know, you might assume that I am really into science or think NASA is super cool or that I am for the Astros baseball team. I mean, there's a lot of things that you you can put someone almost in context uh, when you know a little bit about where they're from. And I didn't know anything about Samaria. And so I started to study in the scriptures. And I think the place where this conversation happens between Jesus and the woman at the well just became really important to me. Um, and like you, it's been a couple of years and I can't really shake her. <laughs> yeah. I mean, she's so interesting for so many reasons. Um, and I, what I love is just the way, one of the many things I love about the story is the way Jesus interacts with her. What did you sort of find was most surprising about that interaction for you? I think one of the things that stood out to me was that he was seated when she arrived and we know he was weary from his travels and really tired and probably hungry. And that's why his disciples went into town to get some food. But I just find it fascinating that the the God of the universe, the person who is said in Ephesians to be far above all rule and authority and power, dominion and every name and title that can be given in this age and the age to come that has made the world and the church his footstool. This God who towers over his creation, not only is (laughs) Emmanuel, God with us incarnate, but he's seated by the well you know, not standing in a power pose, demanding that she recognize his power. But instead, I think he's humbly positioned to receive a stranger in a way that might make him more approachable to have a really intense conversation. So that's one thing that sticks out to me is uh, we see that he sits down for the Sermon on the Mount, Sermon on the Plain. Potentially, we see that after he rises from the dead, he is seated at the right hand of the Father. So there does seem to be a pattern with Jesus and um, making sure we know that he will come to our level, if you will. And um, so I think that's a huge thing. Yeah. I'm always struck by his tenderness with people. And you even see it in other gospels. Like I just did a big study on Mark for school and, and the, 
and the feeding narratives in Mark. And so where it's talking about like, and it's so interesting because it also contrasts all these different types of leaders, like right before he's feeding people and he's always feeding from a place of compassion. Like that's where it starts. And so Mm -hmm. it's so interesting to me, like you just think about this, like you were saying, this big God who becomes a human and shares our needs, but even when he may be feeling them, he still sort of has this compassion and view to be able to say, you know, oh, let me take care of you too. Yeah. I always just, I have so many questions for him about his conversation with the woman at the well. Did he stay seated? You know, did he end up standing up and dusting himself off and leaning in? Did he stay where he was? Did she come closer to him as the conversation progressed? I don't know. These are all things I can't wait to ask. I think it's fascinating that what, what you and I know from cultural context and a little bit about the near Eastern culture in the first century is that this was a no, no on so many levels that he was having a conversation in private with a woman that she was a Samaritan and that she had a past. And so she, she's the least likely person that he would talk to. And yet he has the longest recorded conversation with her in the new Testament. I think even that is emblematic of who Jesus is, that when it comes to the vulnerable and the marginalized and the overlooked and the unimpressive, um, and even those that are cast out of society, that he not only purposely engages with them in compassionate dialogue, like you mentioned, but spends considerable amount of time in when we know his ministry was so short, three years is a short ministry life. And yet the longest conversation we have of him, he decides to spend it with someone he really shouldn't have been talking to. And, you know, when the disciples get back from getting food, I wonder, wonder about that return. Like, do they drop the food? Do they throw it in the air? Are they, you know, um, eating while questioning each other? Like, what is he doing? But they're obviously shocked and dismayed. So this conversation, it flips the script. Yeah. So you talk about in the book that this is Jesus meeting her at an in-between place. What, um, how would you describe an in-between place for the rest? Yeah. Yeah. That's a really great question, Kate. Um, there's, you know, and there's like macro level on a theological level, you and I and the rest of the world live in between the resurrection and Christ's second coming. So in some sense, you know, theologically, we're all in an in-between place because we all live in this God's kingdom's been inaugurated, but it's not yet complete. So we endure suffering, but we look forward to the future and hope. It's it's a tension-filled life that we lead as Christ followers. So that's that's one level of in-between place. I think it can get um, metaphorical when you feel like you're in the messy middle of a job transition, a relationship change, and I'm talking about divorce, remarriage, even losing someone that's really important to you, a loved one. I feel like those liminal spaces in our personal lives many times reflect the macro level what's going on, that Christ hasn't come back to remove all the tears from our eyes yet. So um, the in-between place for the woman at the well is that Jesus is in between Judea and Galilee, where most of his ministry was happening and succeeding 
And Samaria was a place that Jews just didn't go. They just didn't go there. They tried to avoid it. And yet he purposes to go there. So I think metaphorically speaking, what we can learn is that Jesus enters into places that you and I would hang a do not enter zone over. Um, And nothing there in those do not enter zones shock him. And in fact, he is able to exhibit compassion and love in a way that I don't, I don't think we ever can, even in our most Holy Spirit moments. Um, And then I think the in-between place for the readers of the book is for someone who might, I joke, feel like they're in Stuckville. Mm. It's like, you know where you're going, you know what's ahead. And I can think of something in your life because we're friends and I bet you can think of a couple of things in my life. Um, but I think for anyone who's reading it, they're going to be thinking, asking themselves questions like, how did I end up here? Like, how long am I going to be here? Why does it seem like everybody else got there, got ahead a lot faster than I did? You know, why does my journey have to have all these pivots? And I've been saying lately, I've pivoted so much. I'm dizzy. Yeah. You know, I don't want to, I want to, I don't want to be in between. I want to have arrived to my goal, to my place, to my title, whatever it is that we're looking to get to. Yeah. I mean, and in the year of our Lord, 2020, who cannot relate (laughs) to being stuck, right? Like (laughs) I feel like we're all, it's hard not to look at what's happening around us and being like, oh, I can't imagine what being stuck's like, like, (laughs) because whether it's being stuck in our house because of quarantine or being, you know, all the big plans that we had, you know, we had plans to travel or to do this or that. And none of that panned out this year. They're gone. All those plans, they gone. I know. I always joke that my greatest, I was so ambitious with buying a planner for 2020. (laughs) The most ambitious thing we did all year was very ambitious of me. I should have known better. That's not like me. Yeah, I hear you. I think for some people, they feel like they're on a precipice. Like, oh, I'm just right there. I know I'm so close to getting where I've been trying to get to. I think for others, we feel like we're on a cliffhanger. (laughs) Dangling from death-defying heights going, yeah, I, this could, if this, if the wind blows, things kind of game over for me in this relationship, in this job, in this economy. So, um, yeah, it's funny, Katie, when I pitched the idea about this book, never heard of COVID-19. Didn't exactly, like I'd never Googled how to design my own face mask. Um, and so it's just interesting because when I pitched the idea at, at the time, we all felt like, oh, this is kind of heavy and intense. I don't know if, I don't know if this will really serve a purpose in the body of Christ. And now here we are. And I feel like it was so providential that I was willing to say, I don't know. Sometimes I feel despairing. I do. And I think Jesus enters into that place in my life and doesn't make me feel badly about it, but instead he helps me with his presence. Yeah. Which, yeah, I mean, like you said, in all of God's providence, here we are (laughs) heading into 2021. And it's maybe one of the more timely things that we all need right now. Um, so why do you think we get stuck or how do you think even the enemy, right? Uses that stuckness in our lives. Yeah. For me, it would be a mental script. And what I mean by that are just things I say to myself that if I were 
to put those things on paper and hand them to you because you're my friend, you would look up and you would say, Kat, stop it. You know that this is not true about you. And there are things that I would never say to a friend, never, because they would be cruel and demeaning and, and inappropriate. But I, I, to myself in silence, in my head, say things like, you'll, you'll never make it work. It just isn't going to happen for you. Things are never going to change. This is, this is how things go for you. Um, or this isn't going to work out. I I'm really good at, um, foreboding joy and having these mental scripts that talk me out of moving forward. That's how I think the enemy works in my own personal life. I'm sure it looks differently in others, but I talk in depth in the book about trying to break some of these cycles. And I think what we see in the woman at the well story, is something really cool. Um, there are four betrothal scenes in the scriptures. And when I say betrothal scenes, I mean a moment in time that's recorded for us um, that shows a man seeking a wife and doing so at a well. And we see this in three stories in the old Testament. And then we see it in the woman at the well story and any, you know, for us, we may feel kind of distant from this pattern. Um, but I liken it to, um, Christmas holiday movies. (laughs) (laughs) Now we've got them on Netflix, but it used to be the, um, I can't think of the name right now. Like Hallmark movies. Yes. The Hallmark channel. Lifetime. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Aaron and I were so into Hallmark Christmas movies. And the reason was because we're both in ministry and within 60 minutes to an hour and a half, a nice little bow would be put on this cute little story that had the same ending. It was happy, a happy ending. And we didn't care that it was the same plot and the same character and the same story, just in a different scene. We loved that it wasn't like our personal lives where things kind of were left hanging. There was closure and there was happiness at the end of every story. And so in the same way that we know where Christmas Hallmark movie is going, we know where it's going, how it's going to end. People in the time of Jesus that knew about the woman at the well story would have been anticipating as they read John's account. Oh, we've seen this before a woman at a well with a man this is how this story goes. And I think Jesus interrupts that pattern and shows us he really changes the narrative of our internal scripts and then also how our lives play out. But I think the enemy can get a foothold when we discount just how powerful God can be um, to change our story. Yeah. I think over and over, every time I read through the gospels, I'm always just sort of blown away at what everyone expected and what Jesus actually did. Um, And even when you think about like what Messiah was and what he came to do, and then you're like, no, you know, he, he continually flips that script. And so like, it's really sort of even a helpful reminder for me to think like, maybe this is what I'm expecting, but maybe there's, even though this is feeling disruptive, maybe there's something better. Maybe there's not, but you know, because pain and suffering and bad things happen, but that, you know, there is something redemptive in all of that, you know? Yeah. Dr. Daryl Bach puts, I've, I didn't get to have Daryl Bach while I was at seminary, but I've been auditing a course with him. I've been auditing New Testament exegesis. And he said a phrase I'd never heard him say before. He said, when the scriptures catch you out 
or catch you off guard is, is kind of what he means. You got to lean in and pay attention to what God is trying to communicate to us because we expected one thing. And that's what the woman at the well expected. She expected one thing and got something radically different. And as the, as the listener, as the reader, we should be hearing and reading that story and going, Whoa, wait, this should have had an alternate ending. One that we could have predicted. No one would have predicted that while the disciples were gone, he would have engaged in this conversation and that she would have been one of the first people to recognize Messiah accurately and then go and share about it effectively. So this is a pretty monumental thing that happens in the scriptures. And another thing you talk about in the book is sort of the necessity of hope. You know, what role does hope, why is it so vital when you're in an in-between place? Yeah, I mean, if you can't see the light at the end of the tunnel, if you feel like darkness is on every single side of you in between your rock and a hard place, I mean, you're not going to break those scripts in your brain. You're not going to see your change, your story change. Um, and so I think if you can see the light at the end of the tunnel, you inch towards it, right? I think we see that even with a pandemic where we are right now, as we record this, we've got the, you know, vaccines right around the corner, potentially accessible to a lot of people. This is a hopeful movement for a lot of people. And um, just knowing that there's a time frame for deliverance, for a cure, for healing, for protection from something that's been really scary and really deadly this is, this is what brings us hope. So I think knowing um, the end of the Christian story that Jesus is coming back and that in his time, we will see how he makes all things right, certainly creates hope in our life. But I think when you're in the in-between place, it's hearing stories like the woman at the well and recognizing, wow, he entered into her do not enter zone. He radically changed the narrative. No one would have expected this. He commissioned her to go and share her story. What's crazy is that she did. Other lives were changed for the better. And her testimony wasn't even good. It was a question. Could this be Messiah? Was the whole, you know, her whole witness to Messiah. And so I, I take so much hope from that, that she was still in a really broken place in life and was used by God to do something significant. And she still didn't have it all worked out in her own personal life. But we know that her she would have been radically changed from that moment on. And so hearing a story like that reminds me, okay, my story can be like hers. It may take some time for Jesus to show me the redemptive movement, but he will do it. Yes. And I also love one of my favorite things about her is that she like takes that and carries it immediately. Like she effectively becomes the first church planter because she like picks up the message and just runs to town and is like, Hey guys, you have to come hear this. And yeah. And so it's just that sort of like, when you get it, you have to really just like take that courage and keep pushing through, you know? And I hate to say push through because I think that can be, abusive in some ways, but there is an amount of, you know, perseverance that we just have to kind of like keep going for. So I'm curious what you would say is like, what are some of the ways, maybe like one really good way that we can capture that vital hope for ourselves or fight against hopelessness in when we find ourselves in that place to like have some of that 
um, as you even said in the book, borrow some of that courage from the people who went before us. Yeah, that's going to sound really spirit over spiritualized and maybe a little trite, but I'm looking at uh, something that's hanging on my wall. My friend Angie Gillikin Robertson painted it for me, and it says he has a plan. Only he knows. Push through the mess. Eyes on him. And I agree with you. That word push it could definitely be taken and manipulated in a really negative way. But I think in a in a, in a healthy situation to persevere through something with your eyes on Christ will make a huge difference. But let me make that a little bit more tangible because that's, you know, just a concept out there that I think we've all heard before. For me, it is literally rehearsing some scripture verses that I know to be true and and applying them to my situation, listing out maybe in a journal or on a sheet of paper on a sticky note or something I want to throw in the trash that, that says, this is what's going on. And I know I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. I know that goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. I know that when he starts works, he completes them. I know he's left me the great counselor. I know that that will be my great teacher. I know that he will continue to real, reveal truth to me. I will rehearse until I start to believe some of the things he's, he has been very clear about in the scriptures so again, I know that sounds really trite, but that is, if you if you end up buying the in between plays, that is what you're going to get. Is that the truth of God's word, as evidenced in the story of the woman at the well, is that He changes our lives and that He goes to places with us that no one else will go. That He stays with us long enough to see our, us healed and commissioned, and that He empowers us um, to change people around us as well. So I think just rehearsing that this is true. This is true. Yeah. And I love those points too, because though you see them very clearly in the woman at the well, like that's, that's Jesus' whole story. Like that he, I mean, what other, there aren't really other gods who do that, right? Like he comes and he becomes and lives and shows um, and takes care of all that. And then now we have, we are now that embodiment, which is when I think about it too long, it feels really heavy, <laughs> but, <laughs> but it's also really joyful and exciting and, um, and powerful, you know? I wish we had the rest of the story. You know, it ends, the story ends by John telling us that so many people in her city got saved. They had to see for themselves. Jesus ended up staying three days with them. Her testimony led them to Jesus, but then Jesus's own testif- uh, testimony is really what caused them to come to saving faith in Christ. But I want to know what happened after Katie. Like, Thanks. so do you know, do I don't know about you, but the person who led me to Christ, I have thanked them so many times since it was a choir teacher and a cheerleading coach for me. The, the one of my friends, Carrie, who discipled me, the first person who taught me how to pray. I can't tell you how many times I've reached over her out to her over the years and been like, Thank you for teaching me to pray. My prayer life is the only thing that's getting me through. And uh, so I always wonder, what kind of crazy joy is it for a large portion of your city to have just come to faith in part because of your broken, feeble testimony? Like what kind of jubilee happens, you know, when you're celebrating our lives have been changed by Messiah. Like we know him now. And I wonder what kind of conversations happened to thank you for telling me. I didn't know. Can you believe it? What do we do now? Who do we tell next? And so 
I think that we, we end that story rejoicing with the people who got saved. But if they were anything like the New Testament church that multiplied and made sure everyone was cared for around them, th- this, this would have had ripple effects. For sure. I mean, and that's one of the things that um, I loved about when I when I got to travel and see church in different places around the world was that it was all these people who like didn't have it together. Like I feel like here we have so much in information and access to theological materials. And there are these people who are, are just like her. They hear it, they accept it. They get baptized on the spot and then they run back and tell their families and their families get saved or they go tell their friends the next day and their friends become believers. And we just sort of like feel like we have to have all the right answers or like have to have the perfect sales pitch or we have to have it all together before we can do any of that. But um, I mean, to me, she's always been sort of living proof that none of that is true. Like she literally just ran back and said, this man told me everything I've ever done. (laughs) That was it. That was her sales pitch. (laughs) That's the whole thing. It's the whole story. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, she didn't have time to go to seminary in between her conversion and this commissioning and her testimony, saving people's lives. She didn't have any time to do Bible study. You know, she didn't have any time to be in discipleship. She, Um, so these, those are all wonderful things. You know, I'm all about the Bible study. You know, I loved my time in seminary and you know that I making disciples is a priority in my life. She was used by God and we can be used by God in our messy middle. We don't have to get out of our in-between place. So she doesn't leave Samaria more than likely, right? She probably lives there maybe the rest of her life. Yeah. Her circumstance may not have changed. She needed that uh, the her the man that she was living with to survive um, because of that culture. So we don't know if those things changed, and yet she had been redeemed. So I think it should bring us a lot of comfort and release us from the burden of perfectionism and wanting to arrive. This liminal space we're in is just it's part of life. <laughs> yeah, and God works here as much as He works in the arrival space too. Um, man, I'm excited to meet her one day. <laughs> Me too. We'll have to sit at the same table. <laughs> yeah. In the, the heavenly Starbucks is some, we'll, we'll grab some coffee. Um, I love it. um, yeah. So as we wrap up, as you know, this season is about Jesus and how we think about him and what we love about him. And so I'm, I would love to hear from you. What is your favorite thing about Jesus? My favorite thing about Jesus is that he dignifies women, mm. that he values um, their voices, that he treasures the way that they were made, um, that he protects their bodies and their livelihood, that he trusts their testimony, that he believes women. And I love the way Jesus treats women and especially women that were of the wrong ethnicity. Um, I live the countercultural ways. He seems to have conversations and teach women things that they should, were not allowed to learn. And, um, but you know that already, you know, I love that about him. Yeah. 
No, he's good people, that Jesus. <laughs> I like him a lot. I like him a lot. I think I'm going to follow him forever. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, thanks so much for joining me. I really enjoyed this, and I know that it will be, I hope, I hope it will be encouraging to everybody who listens. Thanks, Katie. Jesus changes everything, and knowing him changes us. I hope you found a little hope today as you heard from Kat in our interview. If you want to keep up with Kat, you can find her at katarmstrong.com. That's Kat with a K. And you can follow her on Instagram and Twitter at katarmstrong1. And you can find her on Facebook at katarmstrongauthor. You can also purchase The In-Between Place today, which I highly recommend. You should totally pick it up at katarmstrong.com slash the dash in dash between dash place. It's in the show notes, so you can just click on from there if that's helpful. And if you are looking to create biblical community with intimacy and integrity, then I have a resource that you should totally check out. It's called Couches and Cathedrals, and it's my little newsletter that I created just for people like you. Not only will you hear the latest updates about the podcast, but you'll also get weekly nuggets about building community wherever you find yourself in location or in life. So you can sign up for that today at kateboyd.co slash newsletter. Until next time, I'll see you then. Have a great week.